Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. Having a, a really good dad makes a huge difference in your life. And I know the title is actually not worded correctly, right? Because I'm dyslexic and I can't work out how to put it any other way. I did ask Jesus why I can't dance, and he said, well, if I allow you to dance, you'd show off all the time, which is true, so <laughs> maybe I'm just dyslexic, so I can't show off about preaching. Okay, 35 years ago, 35 years ago, there was a guy called Carl Manager. He's a psychologist in America. <coughs> Excuse me. He's not very well known in Australia, um, but he's pretty well known over there, mainstream and he actually came up with the idea uh, in a book called Whatever Became of Sin. Now, if you're a mainline secular psychologist in a country and you come up with that title, people are going to take a peep at your book because it's pretty, pretty unusual for someone to do that. And he, and he says this about it. He says that there needs to be a revival in, the consciousness of, conscious, in our conscience sense and a sense of, of guilt and repentance. He writes... I'm calling for revival of the concept of sin. And what did that look like? And here's what he says. The assumption that there is sin in it somewhere implies both a possibility and an obligation for intervention. If you believe in sin, you've got to intervene. Is that fair enough? Uh, hence, sin is the only hopeful view for humanity when evil appears around us and no one is, is responsible and no one's guilty, then no moral questions are asked. And then there is, in short, nothing to do about it. And we sink into despairing hopelessness. you got people who are telling lie after lie after lie as leaders of a country. And people start to shrug their shoulders and say, well, what can we do about it? Because there's no sense of responsibility. Where uh, CEOs of banks can say, oh, we're sorry that we actually uh, got money out of dead people's bank accounts and didn't ever really give it back. And we, we basically are sorry. And then they expect nothing else to happen to them. There's no sense of, you know what, anyway, you've got the point. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal, manager says, is for revival of the consciousness of sin, which would not be more depression, in, seen more depression in our society, but see less because people would do something about it. Martin Luther, who you would know, uh, he, he believed in his own day. In about 1570, he wrote these words. He said he thought the church had lost its soul, and he wasn't far wrong. He, he, was, he lived in Germany, Germany now, and then he went and worked in Rome because he's a very clever fellow. And uh, 1570, he went back to Germany, and he nailed a reform plan on the Wittenberg Cathedral door. In actual fact, he probably didn't. He probably hung his notes over a door handle because that's the way they used to do it. But it sounds a lot better if you get him up there with a nail, whacking the, the thing up on the board. And the centre of his 95 thesis was this idea that all life needs repentance. All life needs repentance. And both men are saying the same thing. They're saying that the best thing for you and for me, if you, want to, if you want joy and hope in your life, is to get a grip on what sin's doing to us and to the world. Get a good grip on that, and then you'll want to do something about it. And Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to, Genesis chapters 1 to 3 talk about that. And it's the only place I know anyway, and I'm, I suppose I'm paid to say this sort of stuff, that where if you get a good grip on it, you'll actually understand yourself better. I don't know anywhere else 
in any philosophy where you'll get a better grip on yourself than by reading over and over Genesis chapter 1 through 3 until it becomes a colour kaleidoscopic picture that you understand reasonably well, as well as you can understand that passages of, those passages of scriptures. There's a guy called Blaise Pascal. Anyone heard of Blaise Pascal? Michael has because he reads widely and he's probably told he had to as well at theological college. Uh, he was a very clever man, a mathematician and a thinker and he had a very, very dramatic conversion experience in the 17th century. And he put it this way, certainly nothing offends us more rudely than the doctrine of original sin and yet without this mystery, the most, incompre- the most incomprehensive of all mysteries, we, will, we, will, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Does that make sense? It's an incomprehensible thing to believe in original sin, but if you don't believe in it, you'll never be actually comprehensive of your own self. That's what he's saying there. And that's my first point. Read Genesis chapter 1, the first three chapters of Genesis. And there we actually find out how we've fallen, uh, how sin is actually absolutely, is ab- understanding sin is necessary to make sense of our lives. And Pascal went on to say something about animals. He said something like, Animals never aspire to be anything other than what they are, but humans are always aspiring. Sitting here this afternoon, if I could look at your faces in the dark for a couple of minutes, each one of you, I could see almost what you're aspiring to for this week. Human beings always aspire to something. And if we're not, well, then we feel like there's something wrong with somebody because they've lost hope. Never enough love for us, for some of us in particular. Never enough joy, never enough achievement. And what's the answer to this? Pascal says, the greatness of man is so evident that it is even proven by his wretchedness. Now listen to this. For whoever is unhappy at not being a king, who, for whoever is unhappy at not being a king, except for a deposed king. Get the point? If you've been somewhere and you've been deposed as a king, well, then you're unhappy. You've lost your kingdom. And what he's saying basically is that we've all lost our kingdom. The Bible says for one brief shining moment, you get it in Genesis chapter 1 to 3, there was a moment of Camelot. The Bible says that the only way you're going to understand yourself is to realise that we're all conscious of having lost our glory. And you get it in the first three chapters of the Bible. If you think about it, since the time of humanity until now, there was only a few months or a few years where there was Adam and Eve together where everything was actually hunky-dory. The rest in some ways has just been hard work. And we have to accept that, you know. If you don't accept that, well, then you're not accepting reality and you won't see what sin does to humanity and to yourself as well. We were all kings and queens once, you know. Read Narnia. Another way to put it, in Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule. So there's part of us that just wants to be a king or a queen, not in a wrong sense, but in a right sense, to rule. And that means, amongst other things, that we we have our rational natures, we have a hunger to know, we have a personal act, a personal nature. We've got a hunger to love. We've got an eternal aspect of who we are. And there's a hunger to last. I'm going to a funeral of a really nice man tomorrow. We want to last. Why are we so unhappy about dying? 
why do we see it as being not natural? Why do we feel like it's, it's wrong? Because it's the wrong way of things going because of what's happened in the world. And we have a creative act, but we, hung, we hunger for beauty. And some of us get closer to being able to recreate that than others. And natures are structured like a mirror. We were built to reflect God's own rationality and personality and eternity and creativity. And that's mixed up inside of all of us along with sin. And when we decided to be our own gods, we violated our, violated our own natures. We have violated who we really are. Just the way we violate, violate the nature of a, a petrol engine by putting sugar in the tank. All right? It just corrupts it and makes it go crooked. So Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3 explain the paradox of why we are today like we are, the paradox of the human race today. I'm thinking about Gary Ablett right now as well, right? That's probably why I'm a bit emotional. You have very pessimistic views of the human nature in existentialism. Has any of you ever read existentialism? It's rather interesting. Quickly, a potted version, hopefully I'm right because Michael's smiling at me here, is that you can't really know anything except what you know right now. So if you feel the person next to you, you know that person's next to you. History is all wrong because if you go to, you look at, for instance, um, um, the police report on a car accident and you get 10 different people's reports, they're all different. So you can't trust history because everyone interprets it their own. So that's all gone. We don't know what to come. So all you've got is the existential moment. Is that fair enough? And we need more than that as human beings. That's very, very ne negative. It basically, in the end, it works out to just doing what you want to do. Then you have a very optimistic view, which was in the old humanism, which said that humanity is getting better and better and better and better. And I don't think too many people in the world believe that today. And Christianity goes beyond both, but yet it's neither. There's a guy called Adolf Eichmann. Who's heard of Adolf Eichmann? He was a German Gestapo leader. He was unbelievably bad, like in, in terms of what he did in the death camps, was unbelievably bad. He got away to South America um, after the Second World War and, and the Israelis frisked him out of there. They found him and got him and took him back to Israel and they put him on trial and they had a number of psych psychologists test him uh, to see what he was like. W was he sane or not? And they all came back saying he was an ordinary man. And, and it's just the point that I'm making from that is, is that within all of us there lies the ability to be a king and there's the ability to be, to be a, a devil, you know what I mean? And we live with that. We really live in the middle of that. And what do we do about it? I said once before here I'd look at um, storytelling. You know what do you call it? Um, fairy stories. What's the word you use for it now? Quick, tell me someone. Um, not fairy tales, the, you know, about um, Black Panther, all that stuff. Fantasy. Fantasy, that's the word I'm looking for, right? Uh, so I'm trying to read this stuff mainly because I'd like to be able to get into the heads of my grandchildren and the next generation, right? So I've always, anyway, that's in, in one of these stories, you've got Lucy, all right? Uh, and in this, uh, see, I'll tell you what it is in a minute because I've read it a couple of times, a book a couple of times already, I still don't really understand it. Uh, Lucy, this little girl, gets into a magic book. Some of you remember this probably. And when she reads this magic book, it brings her joy that she didn't think was she was capable of. It, it makes her cry. It gets to, to the roots of her. It lays bare the foundations of her existence. It was almost beyond uh, bearing. 
But as soon as she turned the page on the book, even though she could remember how it affected her, she couldn't remember the blooming story. And because it was a, mag a magic book, she couldn't go back again, you know what I mean? So she was stuck with this for the rest of her life, having had this experience but not remembering what that experience really was. And that's what happens since the time when we've become broken. Blooming Adam and Eve, I asked God about Adam and Eve and if, how would I have gone if I was Adam? He said, you wouldn't have lasted as long as Adam, Brant. <laughs> so I can't be too dark on Adam, right? But it's our, it's our condition today is, is knowing there was a better story but not being able to quite see it. It makes us itchy. It makes us want more. It's a glory that's lost and we just can't remember it now. Later on in Caspian, the book, that's another Narnia tale. I'm starting to become very intellectual about Narnia these days. C.S. Lewis, the writer at one point, says that through Aslan, he says through Aslan, uh, that we are descended of Lord Adam and Lord Eve. And he says to Caspian, and that, makes, and that means that there's enough to make the dirtiest beggar lift his head, all right, and it's enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. You know, we're, we're, in, that, we're in that mold of Lord Adam and Lady Eve, but yet we can see it and we can feel it and we want to put our shoulders back at the same time we go down like that. So we're caught in that situation. Now the second thing, that's about enough on that stuff, all right? The second thing we can learn from Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 9 is, what happened to our reading by the way? I'm into it now. Okay. Sin deceives us, right? When you go home, read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. All right? Second we learn, thing we learn is that sin deceives us. And what's brilliant about this, this doctrine, manager says that there's hope. That's what he's trying to say. Uh, what's glorious about Genesis chapters 1 to 3 is you can hate evil and you can even hate evil in yourself, but yet you can still love yourself because you're made in the image of God. And that really can be very liberating to be able to really love yourself under those conditions. The essence of sin is actually a lie and sin just lies to us. And I've often thought about sin. Is it actually got a personality or not? No, I don't think it's got a personality, but it's like blooming phosphorus, you know. Uh, in, in the air, it, it'll burn, like it burns like mad, but it's not got personality. The essence of sin is a lie. Sin lies in you and, and you are being taken over by evil to the, to the de degree that you participate or you believe and then you pass it on in, in terms of the, the lie in it. The power of sin is not fang marks on your neck but falsehood in your heart. That's one of the ones that things I want to say today. It's not fang marks on your neck from the serpent but it's actually a mark on your heart instead. You think of sin as, as out there, you think of evil as out there, but to the degree you believe lies in our own selves and to the degree that we participate and breathe and pass them on, that's the degree evil power, that evil has power over you. You think of someone who just strongly dislikes themselves and a lot of us have tried to encourage each other in this area and some of us feel the same way. You, you get a, a somebody who has actually been put down by their parents when they're a little child, right? And, and what the parents say can pass into their hearts so that even when the parents are dead and they are well and truly gone, what's actually part they've allowed to pass into their hearts still controls them. You know what I mean? 
if their parents had have, had have said it when they were young and they didn't sort of allow it to go into them, it wouldn't affect them at all. But we let things in, okay? And then evil takes over. So, e- so I'm saying here that sin is essential, essentially is lying. Now, I'm saying here again from this particular passage, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, sin's lies always start very small. And you think about that, where is the first lie, if you're smart enough and you remember it in, in Genesis chapter 3, where it's the story of Adam and Eve and, and the serpent speaking to them and, and saying stuff to them, and where's the first lie? Mostly people say that the first lie, the first lie is in verse 4, where the serpent says, you will not surely die, because in actual fact God has said you will die if you eat that from that fruit, all right? You won't surely die. But in actual facts, the first verse is where the, the lie starts, where the serpent says, God has said to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Now, that is a, just a plain untruth. God has said all the fruit of the garden is yours except for one tree. And in actual facts, uh, they, they get into a bit of an argument over whether they should touch it or not. In actual facts, they could have touched the fruit, but of course, if you're not supposed to eat the fruit and you touch it, you're halfway into eating it anyway. You know what I mean? So the, the, the serpent actually feeds them a subtlety, a subtlety that, they, that Eve starts to then wonder about what's going on. Now the fact of the matter is that God had told Adam and Eve they could eat, eat, not eat of just that one tree. The serpent exaggerates. The first lie is, hey, I see here God has told you you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden. It's just a straight exaggeration. Sin will always try to get lies into you at your emotional level, you know. You know, if, if, you're, if you're a believer and, and someone comes at you about your faith, they will come with winks and nods and insinuations. I don't know of anyone personally who has intellectually been argued out of believing in Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. I know a lot of people who have lost their faith through winks and nodges, nod, winks and nods, and there's the subtlety of saying, well, do you really believe that, you know? How can Gary Ablett give a tick on that thing, you know? That sort of stuff. So what I'm saying here is that, that, that falsehood always gets into us through the emotional level and falsehood wants you to, 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 to stop you from thinking because if you start thinking, well, then you'll start seeing clearly and so you can move on. So Eve's response to the first exaggeration, what the, the serpent had immediately begun to say was, isn't God overbearing? Isn't he unreasonable? And she says, no, 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 no. We've got all these other trees to eat, but we can't eat that tree and she starts to actually actually question then what God is not allowing them to do and what's already happened through to her through this insinuation is she's already beginning in her own mind to exaggerate the difficulty of God's word it's the first beginning of sin the first step of sin is not disobedience it's resentment to obedience. Resentment to obedience. Because it's the beginning of the belief of the big lie. And what's the big lie? The big lie the serpent gives us, this is the one that has come into our nature, the thing that's gnawing at the root of everybody's soul in this room, probably tonight, because it has passed on to us 
and it will never completely go away until judgment day which is when god will take it away you know come on judgment day in one sense and the lie is god doesn't really care he doesn't really care he wants to keep you down he doesn't want you to actually reach your potential The root problem for, for us today is we do not believe that God cares, that God has, and that God, but God has his, be, his our best interests in mind. I'll give you three scenarios of the fact that maybe God's sort of not quite up to it in terms of us reaching our first potential. Here's one situation: you get a person who's raised in the school in in the church. They go to university, and they start saying things like, "I've lived a narrow life as a child." And times have changed now, and I can decide what's right for me. I think it's good to have a Christian moral principles in a general way, but if I'm completely and totally submitted to them, if I'm completely bound by them, I'll never reach my potential. Well, that person's a Christian, therefore they won't reach their potential. And that's a lie. It's a big lie. Well, you get person number two, and he says this person stays very, very religious he stays extremely moral, but, there's a, but he's a person who is very moral and very straight, but always is anxious, always feeling guilty, always feeling unworthy, always feeling like I'm not good enough. The bottom of both of these is that neither of them believes that God actually loves them, like loves them, full stop. She says, if I let God into my life, well then... Uh, I won't really be happy because I won't be able to reach the potential in the way that I want. And he talks about the fact if I let God into my life, maybe he will judge me. And you've got a third person who's just suffered a big tragedy and he's been absolutely overthrown by it. He's being demolished by it. And one day he says, this isn't fair. But on another day he says, well, maybe it is. Maybe I'm just a louse. Maybe I'm being punished. Now... How is God going to treat us if he really, really loves us through Christ? So there's an assault going on on the morality of God in people's hearts when, they start, when we start to think this way. And to actually get around that assault, that character assassination of God by the serpent in the hearts of people through sin, what happens? What's happened since then? As a result, in verse 9... We read God willing to start the search again. He says to Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? And that actually, in a sense, completely demolishes the whole argument of the serpent and what the woman's fallen into in sin because in actual fact, obviously he cares because he immediately comes to find again. So if you're ever feeling like, well, maybe I'm not quite good enough or, or maybe God's given me this for to punish me, it's a lie because he's coming looking for us, each one of us, all the time. Now, taking that a bit further, you know, we'll spend a lot of money trying to get ourselves through certain things like experimentation as a university student, wellness courses if we feel down, counselling. Uh, if we're really religious, we'll go to serious religious conferences and throw money in that direction. But you think about the cosmic search of God searching for, of God coming to find us. You know how much it cost him for his search to heal us from evil, 
An old priest put it this way. He says, the only way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered by a willing, living human being. The only way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered by a willing, living human being. And when it's absorbed, it can go no further. It's a bit like what about in, in the world today if, if for instance, um, someone in Palestine or Syria, when someone hits at them and hits at their country and they, you know, the whole thing's in a, a fervour, what's going on in uh, New Zealand or in Sri Lanka as well? What happens if someone says, I'll take the hit, I'll take the spear? We as a nation or we as a people group will, will not do anything about it, will absorb this evil. What happens then? The only way to stop evil is to smother it with a living, willing human being. And who will do that for us? It happens right here. Would a God who sent Jesus, uh, his son, into the world to be born, a God who was torn apart on the tree, is that the way a God treats you if he doesn't actually have your best interests in mind? It means we actually grow in Christ... Oh, what it means to actually grow in Christ is that you are willing, we are willing to look at it this way. This shows me that what I have believed in the past, in the roots of me, I'm actually believing part of a lie. Jesus died once for all and he smothered the evil and living, uh, he smothered evil as a living, willing human being. He took the spear in his heart and that's the essential way God comes to us now. The church has regular confession times and that is because the whole thing of what's going on continues in our lives all the time. So confession is, you know, when you say repent, which is a part of confession, all right, you don't sort of say repent like with daggers. You say repent, all right, because when you repent, the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is coming as a king. So repentance is a good thing to align ourselves again with who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Who knows Stephen Hawking? Anyone know Stephen Hawking? Uh, he's one of the greatest nuclear physicists of, uh, of the last 50 years. Um, he wasn't a Christian. He at times would be maybe a bit provocative towards believers. Now, for a long time, he, he believed that um, the universe had always, always been going, right? Um, but more and more from about 1920, they, they started to work out that in actual fact there was a time when everything began, all right, uh, and now it's been pretty close to being proven through one of Einstein's theories that they've actually had worked out now through a practical experiment in terms of getting vibrations from the beginning of time pretty much. It's pretty amazing. It's enough to blow your brains thinking about it. Uh, Stephen Hawking didn't want to come out and say, well, there was a beginning to the universe because he knew what people who were the Jewish faith would say to him, that he knew what the Islamic people would say to him, he knew what the Christians might say to him because they all believe Genesis chapter 1 to 3, all right? They all believe that. So he didn't want to come out and say it, but in the end he did because he was pretty true to himself in that regard. He thought then, well, seeing as there was some, you know, something started the what some people call, what do you call it, the big explosion at the start of time. Sorry, Big Bang. Um, he said maybe there was sort of magnetic vibrations going on before. Well, then uh, <laughs> he started the magnetic vibrations, you know. Now, 
it means that even scientifically you can begin to see that the Father, God, when he comes looking for us, comes from before space and time and he comes into our space and time. And then his son comes into space and time when he's born as this little tiny baby and he grows to 12 years old. Now here's the thing that I've found unbelievably good in the last year or so. Jesus is 12 years old, right? He's, got, he's not God at all in as much as he has to learn the same way as we do through getting God the Father from the other side of space and time to speak to him about who he is and what he's going to do, right? He gets to 12 years old and because he hadn't made no mis- any mistakes at that stage, he goes up to the Jer- Jerusalem temple for the first time, right? And when his mum and dad goes home, he's a 12-year-old boy on the edge of puberty, so he's starting to think a bit differently. You know, he's riding his BMX bike out with his mates or whatever they rode back in the day. And, and his mum and dad go a whole day thinking, well, he's just riding around out the back on his donkey or BMX or something. And he's not there, right? So they have to go all the way back to Jerusalem to find him. Okay? And they find him another day. So it's a two-day thing that over... And he just looks at them naively as a 12-year-old boy and he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? He, he, he had no hesitation in knowing about the fact that God is a good, good father. He couldn't believe that his mum and dad couldn't see it either because he didn't recognise the 12-year-old boy, that adults hadn't seen it either. But he's already experienced that, right? So God, coming from the other side of space and time, is a good, good father. He's an absolute, he absolutely loves you. Uh, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus was an academic sort of a fellow and, and Jesus said, look, you're not going to work out who I am unless you're born again of the Spirit, right? And they talk about that for a while and Nicodemus, sort of coming down an intellectual line, found it pretty hard to grasp. And in the end, Jesus says to him, he says, for God the Father loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, so whoever believes in them shall not, not perish but enter eternal life. That's, that's the love of God. That's the love of God. That is, is the truth against the lie that people can wear from time to time. But how do we get this practically translated into our lives? Now, I'm reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 here. The Spirit comes from beyond space and time. The Spirit comes... The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, in terms of seeing God as a good, good father, not only does God come looking for us, he comes in Christ to redeem us. He comes in the Holy Spirit from beyond space and time to allow us to cry out and see for ourselves in our hearts that we are his children, and that's redemptive. When we hang on to all of that, we can go through absolutely anything and hold our faith. If we question who God is, if we question whether he's good or not, hard times come and we fall because we don't actually we believe the lie rather than that truth of a God coming from beyond space and time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is always with us, always will be with us, and that's just the way it is become, because he, becomes, he comes looking for us. My last picture up there um, is of a pigeon. All right. Now, I'd like the band to come back, and I'll explain the pigeon as they come up. 
when Jesus received the Holy Spirit um, at his baptism, uh, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism in the form of a dove, all right? So here's my final illustration. God, from out of space and time through his Son, sends the Spirit to each one of us here like a homing pigeon. Each pigeon, the whole lot of them, for everyone who's ever been born, has their names, the, the pigeon has their address and name in his head or her head and he comes to your door knocking and looking for you, all right? And as homing pigeons do, they have messages around their leg. And the message is, firstly, is that God really loves you, all right? He really loves you. Another message around his leg is, here's the gifts you've got to do in your life what only you can. If you don't do them, no one else is going to do it. Like Michelangelo whacking away at a piece of rock. What are you trying to get out of this piece of rock, Michelangelo? There's an angel, angel inside there that has to be let go. That's what Michelangelo said. There's an angel inside each one of us that the Spirit wants us to let go in our lives, our gifts and ministries, all right? And on the message of the pigeon as well is the power to carry that out. So I want us to understand that under all circumstances, God is always looking for us. He's come in Christ and has redeemed us. And tonight, as always, the Spirit comes like a dove personally to each one of us and so God is a good, good Father. I'd like us just to sit and maybe just sing this through once, Michael, and then you can finish up. Just sit and absorb the fact that under any conditions, however you feel tonight, God is still your good, good Father. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.